0: All right, September twenty second, two 2015, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here in Nicholson Library with Barney Watson. And Barney, we always start these interviews off with the same question,
1: and you can take it any way you want. The question <laughs> is, why wine? Why wine? As a budding undergraduate student, um, I got very interested in winemaking. I was getting my degree in biochemistry at Berkeley, and it became evident, this is the, this is like 1971 when I graduated, which at that time, There were no jobs anywhere. It was the post-depression at the end of the Vietnam War. It became evident that um, maybe something other than biochemistry or med school would be a lot more fun. So I learned of the the faculty at the University of California at Davis through my major professor uh, in biochem. And he encouraged me to go and visit and meet them, which I did. And then basically two years later I went to graduate school there and jumped in seriously and been doing it ever since. My early interest actually started as a young kid because I was a service brat. My father was in the Air Force and we traveled a lot and we lived in England for about four or five years when I was young. And he was exposed to all kinds of wines and became a fan of European wines. So we always had wine at home as a kid. In the European fashion where until you're about 14, you get a little glass of wine but it's diluted half with water. And if you ever go to Europe even today, you'll find like French Boy Scouts. They'll be 14 years old and they're making hot mold wine in in the fairs and festivals to make money for the troop. (laughs) So I came by it through my family, but then also through my education.
0: So then how did you end up in Oregon?
1: That's an interesting story. I wasn't even thinking of Oregon when I left when I left Berkeley and basically it was the winter of 1971 after I graduated um, as many young men did in those days I fled to Alaska for a couple of years and was working up there uh, actually for National Marine Fisheries Service as a temporary biological technician doing oceanographic synoptics and counting salmon upstreams and stuff like that (laughs) but I was always had my mindset on coming back to Davis for graduate school Um, so I worked basically two seasons there to raise enough money to be able to come back to school but in those two years my my home at the time was in california i'm traveling from california through oregon washington british columbia and then a ferry up to juneau and back several times so i passed through the willamette valley a number of times and was kind of taken with how pretty and beautiful it was and then when i heard there was a wine industry starting up here um, and initially i heard because some of the early pioneers um, particularly Chuck Corey and David Lett, um, and then Bill Fuller, who had been a winemaker in in, uh, Napa Valley for quite some years, were all up here. They were coming back to Davis and giving seminars (laughs) to the undergrads and the graduate students in the Enology Department about making wine in Oregon. And and then a close friend of mine came and worked for um, a couple of seasons for Bill Fuller and then for Chuck Corey. So I was learning more about it before I was even finished there. And when I actually went back to graduate school, my intention was to move back to Alaska when that was over. And you know, the, the dreams of the innocent. And maybe start a, you know, a fruit winery with wild fruits and vines. Sure. And then when I figured out the economics of that, does not work. And then I realized I wanted to get back further north. And then all this was happening in Oregon I got intrigued and about 1975, I'd been out of graduate school for a year. I'd been working in wineries in Napa and Sonoma all through graduate school to work my way through, um, and then worked a year at Sonoma Vineyards in uh, uh, Healdsburg. A job came up that I was aware of, and it was for um, uh, a research assistant doing enology um in the food science at oregon state in the department of food science and technology and it was just a one-year grant run gig um so i came up and applied for that and got the job and moved to corvallis and i one of my best friends at the time who had a big old flatbed truck um, who he used to haul his grapes around drove me up the california oregon coast and then into corvallis with all my belongings at the time, which was two boxes of books, two 60-gallon barrels of Cabernet Sauvignon, and my dog—the <laughs> <laughs> necessities—and I thought, "Well, okay, then I'll do this for a year." And it turned into two, it turned into three, and turned into ultimately, till now. Sure. Um, at the time, the, the industry was really small. There were. 1976 there were 12 oregon wineries that were making vinifera wines there may be three or four others that were making mostly, mostly uh, fruit wines like honeywood mm-hmm. and it was just the infancy so it was this great i mean i came as a young man at 25 and it was this great opportunity to work with these people in a brand new developing industry so it was uh exciting now, the university had no money to pay for this and so the industry which mostly was composed of people from other careers mm-hmm. that switched into winemaking. Um, two of those guys, Bill Blasser, who worked for Bonneville Power at the time, and Don Bayard, who worked for the Oregon Department of Transportation, they knew how to write grants, because they were doing it all the time for their jobs. Sure. So they wrote grants for the Oregon wine industry um, and got it from the federal government. At the time it was called the Pacific Northwest Economic Regional Development Funds. And they got enough to hire uh, me to start off um, with an incredible salary of twelve thousand dollars a year at the time. <laughs> but they did this; it was a one year, then they got it for another, then they got it for a third. Um, the industry was growing rapidly, and they didn't really have they didn't really have technical support. I mean, basically, for the wineries, I was it, and they didn't. There was really no monies from the university were really put into it at the time, until a tax was formed, which was in 1984, and the industry had gotten big enough, and sure. since then, their participation and funding, all that has grown dramatically. But So long circuitous answer, but that's how I got here. So how
0: do you, when the job was originally created, was it created by oregon state
1: or did the wine industry have an influence in no the the wine industry got the grant they were first the wine industry which was very small in those in sure. those days they all fit in somebody's living room sure and they went to the university and said we need some technical support we okay. want you to help you know fund a position or something to provide us with you know workshops and um you know technical training and that type of thing and they said well we don't have anything um so they wrote these grants and then the industry took that back to the university and said, here. And they developed this history which worked great over decades, which was you could go to the university and say, we need some money. And they'd look at the industry and go, well, it's so small we can't really justify supporting it because it's, you know, they, they had no idea where it might go. Sure. And, but you can always go to a big system like that and say, we need some help. And they go, well, we don't have any money. And, they, and then you say, well, if I give you a thousand, will you match it? And they always say, of course. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> so with time they started matching the monies and then ultimately they started developing positions and had the funding to uh, fill it with, with no industry support for salary. I think mine ended in 1989 and the university took it over 100%. But before that it was always 50% and before mm-hmm. that it was on this grant sure. monies. Sure. So the industry really did it themselves with the university's help.
0: So what was the knowledge level like in the industry when you took over?
1: Well, these people that came were wonderful and they were all extremely smart, but they weren't, uh, very few, if any, had agricultural backgrounds, farming backgrounds. Um, The only person in the state at the time I came that had any training in enology was Bill Fuller. He had a master's in enology from UC Davis. So, and I was the only one that stayed in the position that I was in to, have that stuff so they were hungry for information because they were all a big learning curve literally I mean no one knew that the industry would succeed even the people that were doing it sure they they hoped it would and they thought it might but it was so early they there was no proof of that really yet so people didn't know the best varieties although they figured that out fairly quickly they didn't know where to plant them they didn't know the right clones they didn't uh they Few knew anything about wine microbiology or basic wine chemistry. So that was really how I got involved and it actually was a wonderful opportunity for me. I, I love the fact that it all happened and turn out the way it did because I got to work with all these folks with Dave Lett and uh, Myron Redford and the Blossers and just Ron Volsteck, all these folks in a very personal one-on-one basis constantly. So at the time I was doing extension and workshops and training. But we, weren't, we didn't have any extension support from OSU. So basically I didn't have anybody at the university tell me what to do. So I worked for the wine industry. sure, <laughs> And it really just developed that way until um, eventually it got big enough that my position became permanent. And uh, it was all on soft money until 1989. And then I got tenured and got official extension and was then uh, Enology Extension Specialist and then a senior instructor in Enology. But there was that whole 13 years (laughs) before that happened. I was just working year to year on soft funds. Um, But there was another reason I didn't say that I came to Oregon. I always wanted to start my own winery. And um, I thought I would do that fairly quickly. So I thought, well, okay, I have a university job. I'll I'll be able to support starting something small. that took longer than I thought, but in 1985, my wife and I and another couple in Corvallis started Taiyi wine cellars. And it was just a part-time, half-time kind mm-hmm. of thing. just, we never made more than about 2,000 cases a year. It was kind of a small, two-family winery. Sure. Um, but then it became this thing where, and, and all the old-timers will tell you the same thing, you want to start a winery in Oregon in the old days, don't quit your day job. <laughs> sure. And so it, it, all, it all progressed. And so in those early days, it was really it was that need of the industry that were here, wanting and just starving for more technical help and troubleshooting winery problems. So it became just a real fast learning curve. And was, uh, it was an exciting and fun period of time. It's very energizing. So the
0: industry, industry clearly wanted you, and you were hired for a specific purpose. What was the response like for, to you? Were, they, were suggestions you made, were they
1: listened to, were they acted oh, upon? Oh, yeah. I mean, basically, I was like one-on-one um, consultant and extension person for most of all the early people that were here. So I worked with them one-on-one, when they had a problem I went to their winery and we worked on it together, I'd take samples back to my lab and we'd figure it out and we'd try new things and then when it started to be obvious that there were some real fundamental things that everybody was having trouble with, we tried to turn them into little research projects over a number of years. Um, and the industry was galvanized behind that type of information. So if one of the big things that wasn't just me it was a bunch of us at OSU in horticulture and, and myself and a couple others in food science. There was real thirst about okay we know some of the right varieties but what about the clones? So they had no idea what Pinot Noir clones, these are just selections of, of different uh, characteristics of the Pinot Noir plant. Sure. And it turns out in Burgundy there's over 300 different ones. So. And the first ones that came here just came from a few that were in the UC Davis collection. No one knew if they would be the right ones. It turns out a couple were, um, and some others weren't, but then it became uh, the industry people themselves, particularly Dave Adelsheim and others, and Dave Lett, became friends with the Burgundians, um, and they were able to arrange for the Burgundians to allow their plant material of different Pinot Noir clones to come into Oregon. They wouldn't give any of it to California. (laughs) But it was this personal friendship. So the industry was very involved with directing, understanding, and working with the university as to what the problems they were having were and how to address them. And it was definitely a a two-way thing. It wasn't just the university going, oh, we're going to do this or or the industry saying that. So they were very, very involved all the way through. So were
0: there specific, you mentioned there were some, some issues that were kind of hitting everyone, were there specific practices being utilized or specific mm. issues, climatological or soil or anything that were kind of universal yeah. that you had to grapple with?
1: Yeah, one of the on the wine side, one of the first things that became obvious, first there were just some basic winemaking analysis and winemaking skills that some people needed to bone up on. But everyone was having troubles in those days with very low pH and high acid, and having real trouble getting like their secondary malolactic fermentations to go, which is a bacterial fermentation that usually occurs after the primary yeast fermentation that degrades malic acid and makes the wines more rounded and the palate smoother in red wines. And then we became aware that they were using um, malolactic bacteria that were isolated in California. Well, they were isolated from an environment of high pH and lower acid, and these bacteria didn't have the tolerance to Oregon winemaking conditions. So that was actually one of the most fun long-term projects that we did, um, was trying to figure out how to get consistent malolactic fermentations in Oregon. And it turns out people like Dave Lett, and Dick Erath, those two in particular, um, over a number of years were finally getting some consistent bacterial fermentations in their wineries some of the time um, in wines that were not inoculated with pure culture so we took samples of those from those two wineries of, and then and, and combined food science working with the microbiology department at OSU isolated all the malolactic strains that we could find in there and then we screened them first on a biochemical level in the micro department for how fast they fermented malate and, pH sensitivity and all that stuff, and picked the ones that looked like they might be best. And then I made replicated wine samples for quite a few years um, until we picked the right ones. And during that time, once we got the ones that we thought were working best, I was growing up those cultures (laughs) of the bacteria that came from Erath and Irie um, for the use of the industry. So they were getting those cultures from me in the fall so they could get the fermentations going. And eventually then a commercial company picked them up and started producing them. Um, so it was this I don't know, you know, it was just just this whole connection. So there were some basic issues like that. And climate was another only because, you know, they didn't really know the viticult the right viticulture practices for the climate that was here. Sure. And and they didn't necessarily know the right places to plant although that being said there were some really smart people and and Dave Lett um, and Chuck Corey who you may or may not have heard much oh, about yeah. he was a very contentious character <laughs> but he was really smart he had done his degree at UC Davis based on climatology or phenology of different mm-hmm. wine grapes and he had studied the climate of Oregon and other places um, in Europe uh, in Burgundy and and he realized that much of the climate in terms of heat units and the the growing cycle were quite similar here. So these guys were really fast learners once they got onto something. It was really quick and dynamic. Um, And then over that first 15 years or so, they dialed it all in. What varieties, where to plant them, what slopes, uh, what soil types, uh, what yields, um, thinning, trellis management. And the whole time we're working with them, sure. in the Hort department and in food science and in micro, uh, with these trials both at the university, but most of the trials were, were, we helped them with their industry trials is what most of it was. All the original Kona material was at different vineyards. And so that was before the university even had a place to put them or do anything with them. And so it was. Uh, it was a unique period of time. It was cool. <laughs> 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 so you've you've mentioned uh,
0: all the, many of the Oregon Wine Oregon Pioneers, but Erath and Adelzheim and Lett, and you have a pretty unique perspective on them because you you work with all of them individually, you work with them in groups, and you, you, so give me some of your impressions of them from er, early on to now. I mean, you know, you've been, you've had
1: 40-year relationships with some of these people, so. Well, they're just a remarkable group of people. I think that's what made My whole experience coming to Oregon and doing this so worthwhile was just to have the opportunity to be involved with the growth. I grew up as they grew up. I was 25 when I came. Few were more than 8 or 10 years older than I was. Um, So basically it was an extended family, contentious at times. (laughs) Dave Lett used to say getting a group of Oregon wine, they call themselves Oregon wine growers early Mm -hmm. on. And the reason was they're trying to grow grapes for wine rather than grow grapes to sell or just make wines from grapes they buy. Gotcha. So, but Dave used to say that getting a group of Oregon wine growers in a room together to make a decision was like putting a dozen Tomcats in a gunny sack. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was a lot of give and take. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of ideas. There was a lot of innovative thinking. Um, and it just snowballed into a, a wonderful development of a really cool industry. And the, and the thing that I like the most now, um, being at my age, and, and most of those folks, um, most of the early pioneers, not very many are involved in day to day production stuff anymore. I'm not sure anybody is. But many of their family and their children are. Mm-hmm. And there's all this influx of incredible young people now that have infused the whole growth of the industry with all this new energy. And that to me is just really, really wonderful. So it's, it had a character, and I think you probably heard this from other people too, from the beginning of, um, I mean a very special character. People helped each other. And in the early days nobody, most people that I knew, like from California or anywhere else, didn't know where Oregon was actually, (laughs) and you had to tell them, oh it's between here and Washington. That's right. And so, wine samorgan really didn't mean anything to anybody. They went what? So it was a really tough sell to to get the industry started in the marketplace, other than locally. Mm-hmm. And that spawned a whole philosophy and a feeling of community amongst everyone that was here, because everybody's in the same boat. So the feeling was, everybody wants everybody else to make good wine, because if somebody else here is making bad wine and trying to sell it sure. in Chicago, then they're gonna think all the wine from here is bad, they're not gonna buy anymore. Sure. So that was a real unique atmosphere, which I'm sure must have existed in California in the early days, um, but by the time I went to graduate school there, there were little remnants of it left, but it was mostly you know, all for one, one for all, and everybody for themselves. <laughs> and that wasn't the case here. And, and I think that set the stage for the character the industry has now. Because it's still a lot, it's still pretty much like that. All the way through, I mean, somebody will give you, you need some help, you just go to your neighbor or the, if they can't help you or don't have the equipment you want, they'll tell you who does yeah. and people share and they support each other. And that has always been a unique, uh, maybe it's not un- a unique character to lots of things, but it is in the wine business because it can be so cutthroat. Sure. Yeah and that never really was like that here with a with a few unmentionable notable exceptions (laughs) (laughs) well nothing's perfect right
0: um so as you as you look back you have to have a pretty good sense of pride in the role that you played i would i would imagine because you played a
1: big role in getting these people what they needed well i'm real proud of what i was able to have the opportunity to do and and really just enjoyed the whole relationship of years and years of basically growing up with the industry and working with them and yeah for me it's a sense of uh, I'm really lucky <laughs> really because you know at the age of 25 coming to Oregon I had no idea what I wanted to do really I mean I knew I was going to come here and try and see what was going on and it turned into uh, a pretty just wonderful thing and then years and years of just teaching both at OSU and then the last uh, nine years that I taught was at Temecketa and, and helped develop their, their two-year winemaking degree program. All that interaction with all those young people all those years and seeing them go out in the industry, that has been extremely fulfilling um, to me. That feels like I did something worthwhile. And, and I don't know how great an impact it really was other than I think I was able to help guide a lot of people individually over time and hopefully found what they wanted to do a little quicker (laughs) and so if that's so then that's great.
0: So speaking of Chemeketa, take us through how how that started for you, how you got involved in that.
1: I worked at OSU in the food science department um, from 76 until the spring of 2004. So 28 years, as I used to say 28 years with no parole (laughs) and at that time Things have, had been changing at OSU in a sense that, uh, you know, in the early days, there was a small group of us that worked on wine and wine grapes. Um, there was Porter Lombard and Steve Price in the Hort department, and I worked really closely with, with them. And Maina McDaniel, who was a sensory person in food science, and, and Dave Heatherbell, who was at, in food science for about six or seven years before he went back to New Zealand. And we were a really cohesive group, and the industry was a lot smaller. And so it made all the interactions in a way more powerful because it was just, it was small. Mm -hmm. We used to have our annual, you know, research meetings with the industry people and pretty much the whole industry would be there and we'd all be there and there'd be, you know, 40 people in the room. (laughs) And it made it in a way easier to do a lot more of that one-on-one relationship kind of thing. Mm -hmm. As it grew, And I'm not knocking OSU, this maybe you have to edit later, we'll see. But they came to the table late in terms of how much funding they were putting up towards this. They're doing great now, but there was a period of time where the industry was growing with leaps and bounds, um, and frankly it was hard, there weren't enough personnel at at the university or the directors within the Mm -hmm. departments to really they were doing all what they thought needed to be done, but the industry needed a lot more, let's put it that way. Makes sense. So I was getting a bit frustrated, and Porter retired, and Steve Price left, and I was uh, around this period of time. One of the things that she really needed was a teaching experimental winery, which they just kept, we kept talking about, actually for decades, but it just never happened. They kept saying, oh, maybe in a year or two. Hmm. Or, so Chemeketa came on the scene, basically in the early 90s. I, I think they started in maybe 97, 98 um, with just with a viticulture, some viticulture classes and then started adding some winemaking classes but didn't have a degree in it. Um, but they were starting to provide hands-on more direct technical training to the industry than the university could. The university had not put up enough extension support at that time to be able to do what the community college was doing. So the industry turned to the community college, and the community college is great, at, in a sense, they can turn on a dime. Mm-hmm. The college, the university takes a long time, mm-hmm. it does great things in the long run, <laughs> but it can take a long time to get through, you know, to just a bigger organization, and mm-hmm. it is just harder to make quick changes. But Chemeketa really jumped into it. And largely because of a few key people that were there. Um, there were people who were interested in the industry, and, and uh, Lowell Ford in particular, who I think he was a dean of students there for some time, but he had uh, planted grapes and was starting to get involved in the industry, and now he and his son um, have the little winery, uh, Ilahi? Ilahi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And anyway, Lowell was real instrumental in working with the industry, coming in to get the the community college to start putting resources towards helping out both in viticulture and in winemaking, which they did really quickly. Um, In those early formative years, I and many others were brought in as basically just kind of industry or other kind of advisors to the development of the program. So I'd been kind of on the periphery of watching what was going on for some time, and then after, it was about 2003, I think it was 99, I think it was 99 when they first started offering classes. But in 2003, uh, the fellow who was the head of the uh, program at the time, Craig Smith, um, that wasn't Smith, uh, Craig Anderson, excuse me, he asked me if I would come in <coughs> and help do some class coursework development um, just to help kickstart the program. Okay. So I went to my department head in food science and said, If you want to do outside work at the university, you've got to get the permission. I said, They're asking me if I would come and help advise and help them develop the program for a while. And he said, Oh, sure. So I did, and then I got more and more involved with it. And then I realized that. I was getting to the point where, after 28 years, I had been doing extension, teaching, and research, and and running my own winery <laughs> <laughs> for at least 20 of those years. And I had gone to the point where I had really looked, was enjoying the most doing the teaching. The university wasn't supporting the extension to the degree that most of us in the industry thought was necessary. And I realized this is a neat opportunity to continue on and do something else so by 2000 and the end of 2003 they offered me the job to come on board as the knowledge instructor and I went this sounds like a good deal (laughs) so I left OSU and started with Chemeket in 2004 and uh, worked with them for nine years and just finished the spring of 2002 so now I'm trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up again
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we've previously talked to Al McDonald. Oh, good. Um, and so we're. He keeping and I of, worked together. Yeah, really, I was really just close. Just going to ask, what was the what was that working relationship like?
1: Well, it was wonderful. But well, the, Al and I, knew, we knew each other way, way back. He was involved, very involved, in the old days, uh, with everything that went on at OSU and the advisory committees, and, and his wife Joni Witherspoon at the time, and and Betty O'Brien was all in this mix. I mean, all these folks, we go back you know, a third of a century, basically. <laughs> so, and I was a professional vineyard manager and had his own business. And so I'd been in academia for a long time, but I also was a commercial winemaker and a business person and had my own uh, business with my wife and another couple. So when we teamed up together at Chemeketa, it was really awesome because we were all on the same page. Um, it wasn't just academia, it was, it was, how do you teach people to prof- professionally succeed, in a vineyard or a winery. And so that became great fun. And we had a great working relationship through that, that whole period of time. And and uh, that was a real fortunate, wonderful thing too, because you, sometimes you never really know what's gonna happen. <laughs> so I think I was lucky to have those folks to work with. Seems like you make a lot of your own luck. Seems like you've had a pretty, pretty good run of that. It's that's still luck, but you gotta, yeah, well, yeah, I think I was in the right place at the right time, but I had no idea at the time, I was <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> so when
0: you're teaching uh, at Chemeketa for, or, or Oregon State, what is it you, if, if nothing else, what do you want to impart to your students? What do you want them to take away
1: from an enology class? It's quite different from at the university compared to a community college in a sense, because Oregon State's a, you know, it's a four-year undergraduate, Bachelor of Science program in Food Science and Technology or Horticulture and or, or a Master's in grad, Graduate Education and it's very academically oriented so the curriculum is quite different um, in food science at OSU it's a food science department and basically you can get a essentially you can elect to do um, a focus on enology. But your degree is still food science and technology, and you have to take the basic courses that are certified by the national or prog- the national uh, programs mm-hmm. that set standards for those degrees so You've got to have a year of undergraduate chemistry. You've got to have two, years of org- two uh, terms of organic. Mm. You've got to have a term of physical chemistry. You've got to have two different classes in microbiology. You've got to have all the food chemistry classes. Then you get to take some winemaking classes. <laughs> so it's, vi- it's very much more uh, a technical science oriented university degree with some strong emphasis in enology, primarily in the last two years. Okay. The community college is the reverse, it's not the same thing, it's a AAS, um, you know it's a, an applied science degree, mm-hmm. it's two years, basically 90 or 100 credits, and it's very much more technical professional training than academic training. And so in the oenology side I try to get in as much of the science side that I thought was appropriate that would fit into a degree like that, so the students had to take two terms of inorganic chemistry or I don't know I'm sorry it was a year it was a year of inorganic chemistry or inorganic but the third term was largely focused on an introduction to organic. It was nowhere near that the academic or the, the academic emphasis that mm-hmm. OSU had on the other hand, I was able with industry monies and with the college monies to put together a bonded commercial teaching winery at Chemeketa. That's one of the things that drew me there because I always wanted to do that at OSU, but we were never able to do it, and they still haven't done it. Just talking about it, maybe it'll (laughs) happen, but this is 20 years later now since the conversation began. Um, So that was an exciting thing that I thought would be really something fun that I was in a unique position to be able to do, put together a teaching, winery mm-hmm. with an applied teaching program. And so it, it, it's quite a different thing. So, And we have a lot of, there's a lot of collaboration between Chemeket and OSU, and, mm-hmm. and I work really hard to help set that up, and there's people at OSU work really hard the other way, and so they come up at Chemeket and do their workshops because we've got a better facility for some of it, like a teaching vineyard, commercial vineyard, and a teaching winery. Um, and so, it, so it's so it's it's quite it's quite it's quite different. I'd say we groomed our students at Chimeca to be successful, either as vineyard managers or developing their own vineyard or working in wineries or starting their own winery. Um, OSU positions people more to be really top professionals in the wine industry anywhere: mm-hmm. California, Oregon, Washington. Um, when they come out of a degree program in food science those kids can go and get starting salaries of seventy eighty ninety thousand dollars a year in the food industry and many that want to get into the wine industry want to do the same thing well that's not in Oregon sure so they they go to California or other places um, that being said there's a lot of people in the industry in Oregon who've been here a long time who send their kids to OSU who are now about out back running businesses for their parents who are making wines and um, there's a whole bunch of those, so it, it's a symbiotic thing between the community college and the universities. But they are quite, they are quite different in how they focus, what they teach. Another long-winded answer. Sorry.
0: <laughs> we, we love those. <laughs> so talk to us about the, the test the test vineyard and the test winery. You said you helped get those started. Um, Al McDonald. Oh, you finish your question. Oh, I was, I, go ahead. I was oh. just gonna, I was just going to ask what you what, what your emphasis was when you're oh. when you're getting those working with. Well, those. Al
1: McDonald was able to (coughs) set up um, the commercial teaching vineyard at Chemeketa. It's at Eola, which Mm is, it's owned by Chemeketa, but it's on the west side of the river. It's in the south end of the Eola Amity Appalachian. And it's a really good vineyard site, it turns out. It's got really nice south-southeast exposure. And so he set it up as a commercial um, vineyard, not as a research vineyard. You know, we had a research vineyard, a small one at OSU, but it was for research purposes. So it wasn't designed to be teaching hands-on. It was designed to do multiple replicated trials of different things for research purposes. So they're quite different. Sure. And I set the teaching winery up, the bonded winery, the same way. So it was basically the equivalent of a small Oregon winery um, to teach people how to do all the hands-on with wine processing and all the cellar operations, and everything from understanding wine grape maturity, how and when to harvest, how to process, all the way through to bottling, and just very hands-on in the cellar. Um, and then we modeled the whole teaching program, both with the vineyard management classes and the winemaking classes, around that. Um, so you know, that vineyard, the fruits all sold commercially, mm-hmm. and the wines are all available for sale that are made by the students to sell commercially, so it's, uh, it's a cool unique thing. So
0: from your position working at Oregon State and working at Chemeketa, um I'd love to hear your opinion on some, maybe some unsung heroes in the Oregon wine industry who maybe uh, a casual wine fan wouldn't necessarily know about, but who were integral to the growth of the industry?
1: Well, all the major players at OSU certainly were. I mean Porter Lombard and Steve Price. Steve is still in the industry, but he works privately. Um, There were numerous faculty persons in both departments. There were other people that that did other associated extension things with soil scientists and You know, right now at OSU, they're all well known and it's very well developed. There's a very unique faculty there, both in horticulture and food science, but also in ag research services, which is the USDA. Mm -hmm. And they do just an amazing amount of research and development with the industry. But the industry people all know who they are and work with them really closely. Um, So there's, I don't think, I think in the old days we were unsung heroes because the people that really hit the press were really the people in the front lines, like the people selling wine. Mm-hmm. So in the, in the very old days, people didn't know who the grape growers were, but they knew who the winemakers were. Because <laughs> as you know, winemakers talk a lot, or too much, and <laughs> grape growers don't. <laughs> but they have to, because they out there marketing and they're selling stuff. Um, I don't know, there's too many unsung heroes. Have you had other people comment on who they might be, some might oh, be?
0: goodness gracious. Well, Pretty sure your name came up at one point as an unsung hero in the industry, but we've had we we usually hear you know scientists, grape growers, like you said, the non-winemakers, the ones kind of behind the scenes. Yeah. But uh, we're always curious to hear what people inside the industry thought, especially who were there with the growth of the industry, what they thought of uh, uh, the people who got publicity
1: versus the people who didn't. Yeah. I don't know. I pretty much knew everybody in the industry, so there weren't any real un- unsung <laughs> heroes in the old days now it's grown so fast and so quick i can barely keep up <laughs> with the new faces and, and now i don't have as much contact with it anymore i still go to the the uh, annual um you know oregon wine symposia and stuff and i rarely sit through a talk though i'm mostly out in the hallways talking with old <laughs> students and old people and people like dicky Rath and others and we're all just you know, I'm gonna tell stories until, as long as we can recognize who each other are. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so speaking of your old students, um, curious to know if any of your, any of your no- notable former students of yours that you're particularly fond of or have gone on to particular uh, industry fame or, you know, notoriety. Oh, there's so many.
1: <laughs> and i over the years, I've, I, I'll be honest with you, I've always had a, you know, I, w- I worked with the industry so closely for so long. And, as, and especially in a, it, on a personal and an extension basis. I developed a habit a long time ago of not talking to other people in the industry about other people in the industry. Because <laughs> it always would come back sure. to you. It's a small world, it's a small world. <laughs> uh, I just say there's so many, there's, I don't know how many uh, new wineries there are from people who went through the OSU program and through Chemeketa, but it's a significant part of the industry now. It's a, there's just so many. And in these days, you know, a lot of them aren't brick and mortar. It's very, very expensive to start a winery now. You know, we did it in the old days by working full-time at our full-time jobs and doing it on the side real slowly. Um, But today, uh, many people, unless they have industry connections or were family who took over their family businesses, um, they have to find new innovative ways. So there's, all, there's lots of labels, and there's all these people that have these different ways of custom crush or alternating proprietorships, um, who develop a label and a wine and market it, but they don't have a facade, it's being, they may make it somewhere or they may have somebody else make it for them, mm-hmm. but they develop a business. And then as they grow and get bigger and eventually make some money, then they can afford to develop their own facility. And there's just a whole lot of those around. So I didn't throw out any names to you. But Fair enough. Because <laughs> if I did, I'd leave somebody out. And then I'd get a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit,
0: um, I'm curious about your winemaking background as well, since you've, been, you've, since you've had your own winery for, since the 80s. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on
1: what, what do you believe makes great wine? Well, first you've got to have. A, um, first, you have to be a little bit crazy to go into the business. You've got to have a lot of drive, and you have to be willing to fail, and not be fearful of that. And you have to get as much training and experience and knowledge as you can. Um, I became aware of that when I was young. And when I was in graduate school at Davis, I'm thinking of going into the wine industry, or I was at the time, but I was working, I mean I'm t- I mean, in graduate school I'm taking a real highfalutin, high level science thing at Davis. But I knew that that's not where I was going to learn the hands-on. So I purposely, um, I worked my way through graduate school working in the cellars and I wanted to start at the bottom. I worked as cellar assistants, assistant winemakers, I worked in quality control labs, and I wanted to know everything from the bottom up. And that's how I always advise my students, is don't be afraid to go out and get in there at the bottom level and learn everything. Don't just jump in at some place up at the top and then start telling other people what to do when (laughs) you haven't done it. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that was always my philosophy, and it did me well, and I think most of the students that I knew, who were most successful in the industry, learned that way. Um, you know, I st- th- So that's how I started with this whole thing. And one of the, when I started, we've, we started our own business in 85. I had already been in Oregon for six years by that point and working real closely with a small group of people that were here. And one of my favorite things I remember was Myron Redford, who I worked with a lot in the old days. He had no background in science whatsoever, (laughs) but an incredibly smart person. And I remember when I started my own winery, his comment to me personally was, this is great, Barney. He says, now you're gonna have to start taking your own damn advice. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, you're right. (laughs) And then I learned, (laughs) that that actually was a godsend for me with what I was doing all those years because I wasn't just, I wasn't an academic per se. I was hands-on from the bottom up and working with other people who were doing the same and but I had I was fortunate to have had the whole you know I told people would get the education for sure, you gotta have that but get the hands-on too because the two together are far more powerful than either one without, sure. without the other. And um, that was the only, I think, important guiding thing I ever taught any student, <laughs> was that's really important. Um, and that's what they're all doing these days, it's cool. Mm-hmm. I, I love seeing it because I always remember, I know what they're doing because I was there decades and decades ago, and I love seeing that drive and uh, that desire to want to succeed and working hard to do it, even though you it it might not. And uh, but with the right preparation, most do. So to me, that's really exciting to watch and see. Sure. And so,
0: uh, coming in as a scientist then, or with a scientific background, how did you develop a winemaking philosophy, or did you? What, what would you say your winemaking philosophy is? Um, learn from your
1: mistakes one thing i i learned i think you can learn from your mistakes much faster if you have as much experience in academic background and science and hands-on experience as you can then you learn really quickly i don't think you can learn very quickly without making mistakes so the one thing over the years i always taught my students is make lots of mistakes and learn from it but make little mistakes (laughs) make big ones and so i mean that would really is my philosophy is uh Experiment, try new things, don't be afraid to uh, go out there and do something new and innovative, but be aware of what you're doing, be aware that you may wanna, don't be don't go into something with the idea that I'm gonna do it this way no matter what. Um, go into it and take cues from it as it plays out and make changes as you go. So the other one is never do the same thing twice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I think that's, That's the whole thing. For me personally, getting into winemaking, I love the science. But I remember, I was originally backing up about I was was originally started college as a chemistry major at Berkeley, which is total nerd science oriented, I mean, stuff. And this is in the late 60s. Vietnam War is going on. The riots, we had a riot every quarter I was at Berkeley, (laughs) except for one. (laughs) That always happened the week before finals, so there was a reason (laughs) there was. Anyway. So, and the school, I mean, the students, I'm diverting a little bit, but I'm gonna come back on fine. The students, um, you know, it was a tremendous thing to see the involvement of young people in those days with what was going on in the world. And I'm stuck in this really rigid science program, four year program in which there were literally two or three electives in four years. And when all hell's breaking loose on campus, Chemistry department never let us out of lab or lectures, tear gas is seeping through the windows. It's just like so at the end of my second year, I went into my chemistry advisor and I said I I decided I wanted to get a liberal education. I'm in college, I don't want just a science degree. I want to continue in the sciences. I love it, but I want to learn more. Um, and I had figured out, I just said, I want to take this next term off and I had a list of classes I wanted to take. I want to take political science, I wanted to take anthropology, I want to take a sociology class and blah blah blah. And he looked at me and he just was totally unimpressed <laughs> and he just said, you can't do that. I said, why not? And he said, well you'll miss this chemistry class in this sequence, this calculus class and this physics class, blah 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 blah. And I looked at him and I said, what can I do? And he said, you can change your major. And I just looked at him, pissed off, and I just said, thanks, I just did, and I walked out. <laughs> and for the next year, I just took whatever I wanted. I kept taking the sciences, but I, took, I got a liberal education accidentally. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm ready to graduate. Well, I got one year to graduate, and I go, God, I, I don't have anything to graduate in. And then I realized the biochemistry program was a one-year intensive, biochemistry nothing but biochemistry for three terms and I had all the electives and everything all done because I'd done all that chemistry and calculus and physics and all that stuff and it was applied and it was about life sciences and I loved that and then I got interested in wine as I'm doing biochemistry and then I thought and then all of a sudden chemistry became fun because I realized here's something fun I can do with it and so then it became hands-on and so then I got really involved, and that's what drove me into oenology and viticulture was, this is great, now I got some tools that I can play with and do something that's really fun. And that's when I went, why I went back to graduate school. And that was my attitude with my students all through the years too, was okay, I know this sucks doing this stuff at some point, <laughs> but it won't once you begin to learn what you can do by applying it. And then all of a sudden they become voracious. And they want to learn more because there's a goal you're going to make a wine that tastes better <laughs> anyway i love that. another diversion love that <laughs> so first of all i want to ask about Tai. is yeah. that right how what's the origin of the name well the origin of the name um one thing my i wanted to start a little winery from the get-go and i got here but it, it took a while and then i met a really interesting man who was a fisheries biologist uh who worked um for Fish and Game, State Wildlife uh, Department. His name is Dave Buchanan. And Dave started coming into my lab in the early years with his homemade wine, and it, was, and it was he knew it was bad. And so I just started teaching him, helping him make it better. And we became good friends, and we had a, one strong thing in common. We had both lived in Alaska for a couple of years. He'd been up there in Ketchikan. I'd been in Juneau. And, uh, We got to know each other better and then he had some land just south of town and he had wanted to, he was thinking all dreaming ultimately someday he'd start a commercial winery, but Dave was a real smart and a wonderful person is um, and he's a great farmer. But he's no winemaker so but and then he knew that and then i'm no farmer but we teamed up together and so we decided well let's just do this and we started it in an old dairy barn that it was on his property and when we started looking for a name we were really drawn uh, with the graphics of uh, the northwest indigenous indians the Mm clinket and the haida Mm -hmm. in in the northwest in you know basically canada and Mm -hmm. alaska and we both had some collections of these things that we had gotten when we were in Alaska. And um, the Tai'i is an old northwest um, Chinook jargon word for chief or the highest or the best. Huh. Um, there's a mountain right outside of, of Roseburg that's the highest one in the area that's called Tai'i. Okay. When you get up into northern Washington, and in particular, you get up into British Columbia or Canada, Tai'i is any king salmon that's greater than 35 pounds. <laughs> and so we sought out some artists. And uh, we met a man named Dave Jordan. And we first saw his prints. And he was uh, an artist. He lived up in, uh, along the Columbia River, in one of the logging towns northwest of Portland. I f- forget the name of it. Um, and so we called him up one day and talked to him and introduced ourselves and said we're really looking for some we've seen some of your art and and he didn't do traditional northwest Indian stuff he did he did modern versions using uh, traditional graphics that were used in that type of art Mm -hmm. and and he was he was part Indian I think he was I think his mother was from the South Dakota I think she was Cherokee and then he had become really involved with the community in the Northwest and artists in particular with this stuff for a number of years. So we said, would you be interested in working with us to produce a wine label? And he said, sure. So we went and met him and sat down and he came up with uh, five different ones for us. Um, and we, we paid him a certain amount of money every year and took him cases of wine every year. And, <laughs> and so it came from that Alaska experience that Dave and I had in common as well as meeting this character, Dave Jordan. Uh, so the graphics are really cool. They're not traditional, but they invoke that sense of the Northwest. Um, so that's where Tai came from. And some of them, the Pinot Noir, there's a the logo with the Raven stealing the sun. I don't know if you're familiar with that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then he did a goose and then he did a, an owl. Um, he did a number of them uh, for us. And then he made t-shirts from all of them and sold him his t-shirts too. So that was his <laughs> business on the side. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. So what did you want
0: Tai to be known for then? What did you want your winery to be known for?
1: Well, you know, we were growing like everybody else. We were still, we were on a learning curve with everybody in the early 80s as to, what's the best way to make these wines here? And are the right grapes in the right place? And what's the right style? And it turned out what you had to learn to do and still have to learn to do is you have to understand the lay of your land you have to understand the vigor with which the grapes grow there. You have to understand how to crop it at the right levels and how to manage the canopies to have the right wind flow and air and sunshine on the fruit at that site. Or if you have a big vineyard with a lot of different multiple areas, you have to change your practices for each one, mm-hmm. like Temperance Hill, for example, which is all over the place. and then you have to learn to tailor make your winemaking to what those grapes offer from that block. You can't go and go, I want to make this style of Pinot Noir. You got to make what you can make that's going to be best with the material that you sure. have. So that was really how it all developed. The winemakers that do the best in Oregon are those that know how to do that. And so we really just wanted to figure out how to make the best wine we could from that fruit of that site. And that's a learning curve. And it took, um, you know, we. We were, TIE's still in existence, but my wife and I sold our half of the business to our partners back in when we started in 2004 and they took over completely in 2007. Um, But it took almost a decade to really dial it in. And it took everybody else who was doing it at the time, that same amount of time, to do that. And the trick was to dial it in as fast as you can in order to be able to get it so that you're producing a product that'd be successful in the marketplace. Um, We were so small, we weren't really looking beyond a local niche Oregon market. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tai is still Corvallis' main winery. We used to sell 50% of our production just out the door. (laughs) And I'm sure they still do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we sold a small amount in Washington and very little in California. We sold a little bit London, but not a lot, and um, a little bit back east, but mostly it was just local. And many of the small people who get involved in the industry now, they start off at that level. Um, Because that's where you can, you can still develop a niche market in Oregon. Once you get out of state, it's a whole different ballgame, it's harder. People don't know who you are. Mm And I think that was the biggest problem in the old days. People, they've let go out of state, the Ponzi's or any of these folks, or Myron. They don't know who you are. And then you're trying to sell them wine, and then they don't know where Oregon is. (laughs) So it's all about dialing all that in. So, I mean, the success of the Oregon wine industry is really phenomenal. Of all the things that it takes in a new region that didn't have a, a real history of premium wine ever before, they had wine before, but it was mostly pre-prohibition fruit wines and mm-hmm. just very local. To be able to do that basically in a generation is really phenomenal. It's really a, I mean, it's world recognized now and it's something like that is very rare. Um, so that's the philosophy and we are all just doing the same thing to try to figure out how to do that.
0: So if it's grown, like you say, from basically nothing to pretty world, always world known within a generation or
1: two. Where does it go next? Where do you see the Oregon- It's just gonna keep on going. I always, you have to keep it kind of in perspective in the sense that Oregon's very well known, we're worldwide known now for particularly Pinot Noir, Mm -hmm. um, but not just Pinot Noir. And that took quite, I mean, that took almost 20 years to get that really firmly established. Mm Um, But we're really small. I mean, I think there's close to 600 wineries now. A little over 600? Yeah, and and many of them, like I say, are labels are just products, but not necessarily you know, modern buildings. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what percent is sold out of state. It's increasing now with some of the growth of the larger wineries. But I don't think we're more than 3% of the whole uh, US wine production. I think it might be 3%, it, maybe 4 at the most. It's not big. Mm-hmm. And so the growth potential is huge. And I don't know if it'll ever get really big. And economically it was always questionable because you can't make the same amount of money growing grapes in Oregon as you can in Washington or California, for example. We can't ripen fruit here very well in most vintages at more than two and a half to three and a half ton per acre. That In California, it's six to eight. In Washington State, it's similar. Mm-hmm. And so the big boys, the big businesses, they've always looked very skeptically on Oregon because it wasn't in the same league of being able to be hugely successful on a, on a production scale. And there's still, even today, there's only a few big players that have come in. Um, St. Michelle via Dick Erath and Erath Winery. Um, And they bought that to expand the Erath label, particularly Pinot Noir, the Willamette Valley label. I think, and then now there's the uh, big one out of California. Uh, Um, Kendall Jackson? Yeah, Kendall Jackson. Uh, but they're interesting too. Even when St. Michelle came in, they didn't really change the Erath Winery. They, they put an infusion of money in it and, ex- and, and, and expanded it some, but mostly they expanded the Pinot Noir label. And they went from the 45,000, I think it was 30,000 or 40,000 cases that Dick was producing. It's probably 120,000 cases now, I'm not sure. But that was to fit into their national marketing scheme they already mm-hmm. had. Kendall Jackson's kind of doing the same. They came in, but they're acting, very nicely like they're part of the industry here with the same kind of attitude um so i, I just i'm getting the, just to say i think there's tremendous potential for it to grow because it'll never grow volume wise really fast there'll be more and more labels but there will be small production i'm not sure what the numbers are right now but three four years ago at least fifty percent of the wineries in oregon produced less than twenty five hundred or three thousand cases <laughs> a year it's small family businesses. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty unique to our, to the character of the industry here. And I don't know how that can change because you can't, you can't get into the war with the price points at the lower price points without very large increases in both wine production and yields per acre. And you can't do that in Oregon because of the climate. So I think Oregon is hopefully and probably only gonna stay in that top 10% of the wine business. Um, and in that price range of about 15 to $25 a bottle, that's where all the wine growth and sales has been in the last 10 years. Um, so it's positioned in a really cool place, and I think it's just going to keep right on going. It's never going to be, how big could it be? California's just growing and growing and growing. Mm-hmm. Um, Washington's still growing and growing. Mean, California's got to be 90% of the production in the country, it's enormous. Yeah. And Washington's at, at least seven times the production in Oregon. Wow. Um, fewer wineries, but much bigger ones, and more traditional agriculture. So there's a lot of under, there's a lot of potential land left in not just the Willamette Valley, but in the Umpqua, in the Rogue, um, maybe along the gourds in specific places. Um, I don't know how much, but there's still it's still tremendous. The other cool thing about that land development stuff too, it's also helped maintain that farm rural character of Oregon, mm-hmm. of the, because of the land use planning laws they got, the industry helped get through back in the, mm-hmm. when whatever it was in the early 70s. early 70s. That was huge. That was big time. Yeah. So uh, I think the future, the of prog- no, the future I think is great. <laughs> wish I was 20 again or 25 starting <laughs> all over. <laughs> Actually, I don't. I've done it. I've done that. I know that. I've got other things to do now.
0: <laughs> so uh, you mentioned kind of the, the importance of, kind of the, education, the education background and the hands-on background. Beyond that, what advice would you have to someone who came to you
1: and said, hey, Barney, I'm gonna, I want to start a winery? Well, first off, I'd inquire as to whether they had any of what you just said <laughs> um, as to judging how successful they might be. And if they don't have it, I never discourage people, but I encourage them very strongly with, well, the best way to succeed is not only to get the educational background, but hands-on, do them both at the same time if you can. Um, don't just jump in and start. Some folks come in and they have enough monies from a previous career or a job that they can just jump in and start on their own. But most of them that get into the wine business in Oregon are also smart enough to realize they come in and they do apprenticeships with other people. And and Oregon's always been good that way. People have always come in and been able to do apprenticeships with people. Um, And that's a great, that's the way to do it. but and seriously too, and Al McDonald would say the same thing about growing grapes, it's just like, really, are you that crazy? <laughs> <laughs> but if someone is really devoted to it and they're really excited and that's their dream, then you encourage it. If they if they're kind of question going, well, I'm thinking I might this or that, it's sort of like, well, why don't you look into it a little more? Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it might be more than you can handle or want to. Because it takes over your life. It, it, it's all consuming. And it never slows down, it just grows. And grows and grows and grows. And I think that's, the, that's something a lot of people probably don't realize. It's not like you go out into a, either a small or big winery and establish a market. It's not established. You have to keep establishing it over and over again every year, constantly. And then it grows, so it needs more and more of your time. And then as the winery grows, everything needs more of your time. So you have, to know, you have to know what you know and not to push it beyond that. And with what you don't know, you have to get people working with you who do. And, and you have to be able to pay for it or make it worth their while. And, you know, the smart people have been able to do that. Or they have kids that grow up in the family that end up taking it over, who learn who to do it growing up you know, the Ponzi's sure. and the, sure. uh, Susan Sokolblosser's children and you know, there's just a host of really cool folks. What have you noticed from that
0: second generation? How have they differed as, the, as, so- as Susan Sokol- as Sokolblosser's kids have taken over, and the Ponzi kids in that generation? Have you noticed a tangible difference? Oh yeah.
1: Well, the learning curve in the industry got faster and faster and faster. And with the young people, particularly growing up, or young people coming in now and getting the education and and the hands-on training and getting into it, everything happens much more quickly. Success or failure is much more rapid. And uh, they bring so much energy. Um, I mean, just look at somebody like Jason Lett at at Irie. Um, He has maintained the philosophy and the wine style that his father established but he's producing incredibly great wines consistently. The credit to that is not only he and his education working with his father, but also what everyone learned all those years about how to get to the point where you can do that. We were all on a learning curve in the old days. It was like, oh, okay. Well, that didn't work this year <laughs> so. And then, the, then it's a moving target because the climate's different every year. And so you have to, you have to learn how to adapt to the environmental conditions and within the framework of your vineyard and what the grapes have to offer or what you're purchasing and your style of wine and what you've established in the marketplace. Um, and you have, to, you have to be able to continually learn and grow with it. It's not static. And I think when young people come into the industry and the younger people, when they came in, in the beginning here, they all had that. They were voracious. They were Um, and that's what younger people have today too and that that drives it it's the whole driving force and uh, that part I think is cool, I love it I love watching it (laughs) and sitting on the sidelines and drinking wine and watching it
0: (laughs) speaking of that, did you ever worry that having your life devoted to making wine and researching wine, did you ever worry that you would get tired of wine?
1: oh not get tired of wine, no Um, I didn't Now you're talking about in in terms of wine as a food or or sensory-wise. Either way, getting tired of the wine business is another story because it's all consuming, and and you have to be very careful how you grow up in the wine business and approach that because um, it breaks up families. You can die young, and people have because Mm -hmm. it it can consume you. So you have to have an attitude where okay, this is fun. I'm working really hard, but you have to know where the limits of your personal life, and your business, and your work life are. And you have to have some way of maintaining that integrity, both for your family and, and yourself. And that was a learning curve. Mm-hmm. And then you also have to know when to let go. Um, which is what I've been in the process of doing the last few <laughs> years of just not completely letting go, but, but not pushing beyond what I think I can do. And so I never lost my love for wine, although as I get older I've noticed that it's a lot less expensive habit because I drink less. <laughs> and, and as you should as you get older. And, uh, but never the love of wine. Wine is a food, it's part of life. It's part of, uh, I mean, still, eat, still today, when I, when I eat or I love to cook, when I make food, I either decide what I'm going to make and figure out wine to go with it, or I'll figure out what wine I want and figure out what food goes with it. <laughs> I mean, it's just, that's a continual fun learning thing that you just, you do forever. Um, so no, I don't get tired of that.
0: Do you have a favorite varietal or a favorite
1: label? Well, I, I know Pinot it's Noir. an impossible question. Pinot Noir. <laughs> you know, I grew up just liking wines all along, and I never... Um, Here's the thing, I, I was involved at certain different levels all through my career. I prefer making wines like Pinot Noir and Pinot Blanc, and those are probably my favorite too. Um, Pinot Gris is great, but Pinot Blanc is actually better. Um, but that's just because of being an organ availability of that fruit, and having done it for so many years, um, that's what I really like. But when I taught wine, and I taught a lot of sensory wine classes and things over the years as well, and i also did a lot of commercial professional wine judgings for the first couple of decades in the business and i always approached it as i don't look at wines i learned to not look at wines as do i like it or not i look at them as to are they true to their type do they represent where they come from within my experience of knowing the range of styles of wines <laughs> that are from there and And this is odd but because of my involvement at different levels when i drink wines my appreciation for them is learning to better understand where the fruit's from how it was grown the viticulture practices what kind of maturity was it at harvest how was it handled in the cellar how did that express the fruit and produce this style of wine and i try to appreciate wines on more of a, I don't know, holistic basis. So a lot of my appreciation of wine isn't like, oh, I like this or I don't like this. <laughs> it's, it's not strictly hedonistic. There's some I just love to, to, to have, particularly with food, but, but I, look for, I look for different wines all the time. I'm always looking for new things that I can learn more about. So as an example, the last three years my older sons lived in Spain. So we've gone to Spain every year. It's mm-hmm. been quite some time, it's really been fun. And I just love Spanish wines. (laughs) I had experienced some before, but then getting over there, it's just like, this is wonderful. Um, So I learned a whole new, you know, every place I've ever visited, I've always tried to learn more about what's there and experience them for that. So no, I'll never get tired of wine. (laughs) So now that you're not officially
0: other than you, you've, so, you've sold your steak with Thai, you you're not yep. officially teaching anymore. Nope. What is your, is, your, is your relationship with wine basically just down to enjoying it?
1: Um, yeah, enjoying it. And I do make, I, I making Pinot Noir every, every, every couple of years now in my basement, a barrel from grapes from Chemeketa. <laughs> so I always love doing that and and then when you get retired you get on a fixed income it's not like you can go out and buy a whole lot of expensive wines but i know how to make them (laughs) so i can get the grapes and make my own um so i love doing that and i share it with friends and family and um yeah so i'm not and and i still i'm still adjunct faculty at chemeketa and and did work the first couple years after i retired real closely with jesse sandrock who's the Woman that we that we hired to take my place, mm-hmm. who's really great and really sharp, and just worked with her for the first two years to make sure there wasn't any. She didn't have as much um, professional, commercial experience, but she had great. She'd done some internships, and she had great educational background. So just to make sure it was a smooth learning curve for her. So that's been fun. So I stay, I stay attached at a distance, but with her whenever there's problems and things and and, but it was important to back away at at a certain point Mm -hmm. because I was offered to even continue teaching part-time there and and I didn't do part-time there for like you know the last four years um, until we had Jesse and then I just kind of worked hourly part time to help out for the first two years but it's real important that younger people take over and you get out of the way. <laughs> and that is important. So I've enjoyed staying in the loop uh, at the same time, you know, knowing what's going on, um, but stepping back and letting newer people come in and establish themselves. Cause, it, cause I remember what it was like to do that. And sure. that's what they need to be doing now, not me.
0: <laughs> so what else
1: do you want to do now, now that you don't have wine as they? Uh... Um, I wasn't really sure when I backed out of there. You know, When you retire it's always, geez, what am I going to do now? Because I mean I worked really hard for a long time and for 20 years of my life I worked two jobs and you know, basically spent 40 years and going oh, okay. And lots of times people quit work and then, and then they just sort of crash and burn because they don't have anything else. And I think, I think with men in particular it's common that you identify with your work and so when you quit it's just like you're sort of lost. Now I had, I had, uh, the way it worked out worked great because I transitioned out slowly over years. When I went to Chemekka, I worked full-time, and had just um, pounding it to develop this new program and a teaching winery. And after five years, I backed off to halftime. And actually, Al McDonald did the same. And We actually split a position, so it was <laughs> one position and he and I split it. And that allowed us to hire a new faculty person. And then when it was, and then basically I was retired now too. He was on, he stayed on halftime about a year longer than me. But then we sort of worked our way out and worked new people in and helped them as we went out. And so that was a nice progression. It wasn't like it was cold turkey. It was like, Mm hmm. "Mm." And then uh, then I thought when I I was finally done with the full-time teaching load and stuff, basically in the spring of 2012. And that's when my older son just graduated from college and he was home and he didn't have a job. And he's hanging out. And uh, we've, I've always liked to backpack and hike. And, and he has too, since he was 12, he's been going with me. And he's really good. And then I'd been dreaming of hiking some on the Pacific Crest Trail quite some time but couldn't do it because I'm working all the time sure. so one of the reasons I didn't want to have a teach anymore wasn't that I wanted to quit teaching I wanted to quit having a schedule because <laughs> you can't schedule sure. backcountry hiking really so right after the end of 2012 and Daniel's home he's hanging out and he's bored I said Daniel let's go for a week and we'll just hike on the Pacific Crest Trail and see what it's like and he just looks at me and he said nope we're gonna do all of oregon all at once going, oh okay <laughs> so we did so in 2012 he and i hiked all the way from basically callahan's from ashland to columbia river holy cow in uh, basically 25 days pounded it it hurt <laughs> it was wonderful i loved it and then when i went out we originally going i'm going okay i just go hiking and That'll help me, I'll probably figure out, I'll, I'll sort out my life, I'll, everything, I'll figure it all out of what I want to do, and, and it'll all kind of come together, and I'll be kind of zen-like, and you know, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll figure out what, what I want to do. It doesn't happen that way. You get out there and it's like blisters, where's the water, where, when do I eat, where's the food, where am I going to camp, how far do I got to go tomorrow, and pretty soon after about three or four or five days you shed everything else because you're just in the moment. You don't have time to be thinking about the past or the future other than the immediate future and where you're going to go tomorrow. And so after that hike, it was like, wow, maybe I could do more. So that was the summer of 2012. So end of this summer, I think I'm done for this year, I've done 925 miles. Oh, I've done all the way in Washington, all the way up to Stevens Pass. Wow. And I've done all the way, basically, from about Mount Shasta uh, in Northern California. Wow. So I'm, I'm trying to hike section hike the rest of the Pacific Crest Trail. <laughs> wow. So I got 35% of it done. First I thought, hell, I'll never make it through Oregon. then I thought this is nothing I'll never so I'm just whenever I can I mean I'm kind of done for the hiking season for this year just as of about three four weeks ago Um, and I'm already trying to plan where I can go as early as I can in the spring so I figured that'll occupy my time I don't have to finish but I want to try to do as much of it as I can if I can finish it great uh, but if I ever am going to finish it, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm in a small percentage demographic of people my age out there. <laughs> it's not going to get any easier, right? Well, here's the thing. I'm actually in better shape now than when I quit working because of doing it. Sure. So, But if you don't do it, and you just sit around and be sedentary, yeah. It, it, my, I'm, I'm just 66, but everything starts to go downhill real quick if you don't maintain it now. So it's all about maintenance. <laughs> it turns out now you need about 24 hours a day maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> and I try to make as much of it hiking as I can. <laughs> so I highly encourage you to go do a long, long hike when you're young and do it. That
0: does sound nice. That <laughs> nice. It's so It's fun. So as you look back now, do you, is there a certain moment or experience that stands out as the most memorable in the wine
1: industry? <laughs> or a time, or time, or time in your life? Oh, I think the whole bloody thing. I think coming here, and it was a roller coaster in the early days, to be truthful. I mean, I came just going, off, Well, I'll just go check out Oregon for a year, or two or three, which just then kept going. But then it wasn't at all obvious that there was really a career for me at, at the university through a lot of those early years. So it was kind of an emotional roller coaster. The only grounding all the way through was my involvement with industry and my personal connections with them. That was the grounding. And then and they didn't know where it was going to go for them either, so we were on the same boat. And they, we, we developed, I think, a pretty incredible um, relationship, and not all personal, but, but, but uh, professionally through those growth years. So I would say it's surviving all that is probably the thing that, and then coming out the other side, going realizing in retrospect, wow, that was a great thing to have had, been lucky enough to have been part of. So, I can't think of one thing that was the greatest. I can think of a lot of wonderful moments. i think surviving and seeing the industry be a success is the memorable most memorable thing i don't think there were any great seminal moments i remember some real low points Sure.
0: <laughs> <laughs> was there a moment when you when you felt like when you felt like you were you you had arrived or you were you were on
1: your feet like you were settled you know i grew up as a service brat and i was never settled I never lived anywhere in my life longer than five years until I moved to Corvallis. <laughs> so for me, once I got to Corvallis and lived there more than five years, I was settled. <laughs> and I, once I saw what was happening, I thought, wow. I think I didn't know if the industry would be as successful as it is, but I suspected that there was a good chance it would be and thought, wow, this is an opportunity to be part of it. And I think if anything... Um, that accidental vision carried me through all those years as it did the industry people too, the early ones. Um, Yeah, I don't know. There was no, no real pivotal, um, immediate thing. Mm -hmm. But I felt part of it as soon as I got here because I was here almost as long as all the other people that were here. There were only a few that were here a lot before that. you know. Mm-hmm. Dave Lett probably came and I think he planted grapes in 65 or 67. Um, Bill Fuller probably came up a year or two later. Chuck Corey was just barely here. In the early 70s, I think, is when many of them were really coming. And so we were all kind of immigrants coming to this place. I mean, I think Myron was just coming about the year I started at Amity. Um, so we were all... We were all kind of, um, what the hell do we do now? <laughs> and worked together to do it. So that was that was cool. So I felt part of it from the beginning. Because I had the same, in truth, all these people came from different places. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all, uh, Dick E. Rath was an electrical engineer down in California, as was Scott Henry. And Dave Lett was dropped out of dental, dental school and was selling textbooks. And Dick Ponzi, I think he was in the, Dick Ponzi used to build. He was an engineer. He yeah. used to build the rides at Disneyland. He was an imagineer. <laughs> and so everybody was like leaving, finding a new life. And I was so, I was in the perfect mindset with all these people, and I think that's what gelled it all. Is because I was too. I was looking for, I was looking for what 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 was going to be next, and uh, stumble in and have been able to have been part of that with that great, smart, goofy group of people was really heartwarming. Um, So I felt part of it from the beginning, because we were all just flying on a wing in a prayer, really, with some skills of different kinds. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure.
0: Anyway, if you want to ask. That's all the questions I have for you. And is like, there
1: anything I've forgotten to ask, or that I? No, I don't think up? so. I think that's great. You kind of led me through. I mean, one of my biggest problems is once I get talking, it's hard to stop me. So that's thanks. We we love that. That's <laughs> our favorite problem, honestly. Here, so I did have one question for you guys. Do you keep in touch with the uh, Oregon Historical Society with the things you do? Okay, because yeah. the Oregon Public Broadcasting and they you, you you've sure. got the little or, the film and stuff they produce because there's some great history in there. They did a great job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some of that was some
0: of that was ours, as I recall. Was it? Yeah. Oh, awesome. And we wrote we actually wrote an article that was published in the Oregon Historical Quarterly two years ago. Oh, great. Good. Kind of a kind of a just a, a brief over a brief overview of Oregon history of oh, Oregon okay. wine going all the way as far back as we could go. Oh, so. awesome.
1: Because that was that was really at the tail end of that when they were doing that, they contacted me kind of in the same way. I was in their radar screen, but. My name was brought up by a whole lot of people in different points and they name and all. So it was Nadine Jelsing and her crew came to my house in Corvallis and interviewed me for that. And that was great fun. But I, and, and just to tell you just emotionally what it meant to be involved in the industry with all this, I think I've watched it all the way through three or four times now. I've never gotten through it without crying. Because, <laughs> because, sure. Anyway. <laughs> sure. That's how special it, the whole thing was. And then being able to see those folks back then and all the pictures and all that stuff and it was awesome. So what you guys are doing is really awesome too, because you're helping not only preserve that, but I see that you are also gathering all that information from the next generation and generations and putting that, because that's going to be the story in the long run.
0: We hope so. Yeah. We hope so.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast.